Welcome to Art Plus Science Equals Marketing. I'm Caleb Wines. Hey, everybody. I'm Chris Kent. All right, Caleb, what are we doing? What is Art Plus Science Equals Marketing? You know, at its at its core, marketing, if you boil it down to a, a, its basic substance, it's really about art plus science. You, you need the science. You need the data. You, you need something to build a foundation off, but you can't just rely on that by itself. You you need humans to come up with big ideas and transform that data into something that turns into marketing. And this show is going to be about things that we've seen over our careers. I personally have worked on iconic brands, a couple of which I've worked on with you, Chris, including Mattel and Apple, but I've also worked on Expedia and PlayStation and Hyundai. Yeah, and, and for myself, um, as you mentioned, we've worked together. That was at Ogilvy & Mather. I've also worked with you at TBWA Shiat Day, um, worked at Digitas in New York, and then I've also been client-side. I've worked at T-Mobile, I've worked at Sony Electronics, and I've worked at uh, Red Bull, specifically the Red Bull Media House. So I think between the two of us, we have the agency side, we also have the client side, what really allows us to bring a well-rounded discussion to what we're going to talk about. Uh, plus, the great thing is you and I know a lot of great people. So it'll be fun to bring in some of the people we know and our friends throughout different episodes to talk and get deeper into some of the subjects. That's a great point. I remember just recently I've been having a lot of conversations with friends and colleagues, and one of which I had with you. We were having lunch at, at the good old Apple Pan, and <laughs> uh, I think I said at the end, I said, boy, it'd be really great if we recorded this conversation and shared it with our friends because it's just super interesting stuff about this industry. Completely agree. And I say, let's kick it off and get a little provocative. So in my opinion, it's art and science, right? There's a blend. Now, what that blend is, is always going to depend on the client, what you need to do, so on and so forth. But I also feel like we've lost the art and we've gone really heavy into the science with all of technology, looking at ROI, looking at click-through rates. Where's the art gone? When was the last time you saw something that really spoke to you artistically on a marketing front? Well, I think it's nuanced. It you have you you get some data. I'll use the classic optimizer example. Every agency has some form of optimizer. You basically put in a robust target, you put in some budget parameters, you put in you can put in like 50 different things and out comes a optimized media spend allocation. And nine times out of 10, you're going to get a plan that looks like all newspaper and network radio. And they say, wait, that's not right. And that's when the art comes in and you start putting some constraints on what the optimizer puts out. This doesn't always happen, but like I said, a lot of times you get some stuff back that just doesn't match up with with common sense. And that's where the, the art really comes in and you start putting some some of your own experience, the empirical knowledge that you've had, what's worked, what hasn't worked, what the creative is. And that's where I think the magic happens. It's you start saying, hey, what if we did this? And then how do we solve this? And it's problem solving. And so I think that that part has gone down over the years because I think a lot of people just feed the machine use the output, and then execute it. Yeah, and I, I really agree with you. And maybe this is just me being you know, the old guy and telling people to get off my lawn. But I feel like nowadays, to your point, you run the optimizer and media planners just kind of draw a line. And they're like, there we go. That's our budget. We're good to go. Let's just go send it to the client and you know, go figure out the rest. As opposed to you're saying is, 
well, it's telling me this, but does that really make sense to me? Is that where I really think it's going to go? And actually talking with the creative department, where are you guys, where's the idea going? Where do you, like, how can I take what you guys are doing creatively and spin it into something media that actually makes sense? I'll go back to when you and I worked together on Apple and think different, right? We had a great think different genius campaign that was going on. And when we looked at it, we looked, we could actually take that creative and we could do a bus wrap with Rosa Parks in Atlanta, right? Like we actually looked at not just we had to create it, we had to get a message out, we had to sell product, we had to make sure that we were raising awareness, but we looked at what the creative was and thought media wise would be a great way to marry that art and that science to actually make more impact in a better and unique way. Yeah, that's a that's a situation where no machine will tell you to do that. And I have used data where it does spark imagination. Like it'll come back with some results that I didn't expect. And it made me think, oh, wait a minute, there's something here. I can actually use this to help justify a new pathway when it comes to developing a media or marketing plan. And that's exciting. When you can come up with some data that sparks ideas, that that's uh, that's the best. It is. I, what I worry about though, and I've seen happen too much is the analogy I use is a creative comes up with an idea and it's an iceberg. And by the time it runs through all the different channels and everybody has to get a fingerprint on it to prove that they're doing their job, your iceberg turns into an ice cube and it, yeah. like, it loses its specialness. And I, again, that art science, we've got to find that blend. Yeah. And you know, there's, there's no, there's no substitute for results. I think once you once you get to a plan and you execute it and it delivers and you measure it, and again, that's another part of the science that I love is the analytics of it. Once you measure it and you prove that the idea is valid, then you can start refining it and making it better. I agree. So let me kind of spin the, the question to you in a different way. A good friend of you and I, Jamie McCann, put a, up on LinkedIn about a month ago, he put a a little paragraph, a little bit more than a little bit of paragraph, basically saying what happened to all the great creators? <laughs> he writes a lot. He does. But they're always insightful. We love you, Jamie. But it's always like, yeah. what happened to the great creative? Where are the 1984s? Where are the, you know, the Yokiro Taco Bell? Where are the, uh, the frogs from Budweiser? Who's taking a risk anymore? Is it because the science is too heavy and they're too afraid that it's not going to prove out analytically? And so people are afraid to take that chance because I'm telling you right now, there was no analytics. There was no science to tell you that a dog was going to help sell beer back in the eighties when, you know, Spuds McKenzie. Yeah. I mean, I think there's a lot of reasons for that. I think brands are doing less testing. They're, they're being more careful. They're taking less risk. They're risk averse. And I think that that's where if you think about the, the media math or the marketing math is that people or clients or brands just don't want to take as many chances as they did back then. And I think back then there was like, you know, either there was a more testing or B there was more, I'm going with my gut. And that goes back to the art side. So I think that whatever, for whatever reason, the there's more of a, a bias towards benign advertising. I don't know, it's, it's, but it is interesting when you think about what is breaking through, what has been unique, you know, what, where are things going? I don't know. And that's, and again, maybe that's because the role of mass media, it's mass and you have to hit everybody. 
Right. I do have a couple of creative friends. I think we should get them on as a guest and and repose that question because I think it's worthwhile taking a deep dive on that kind of a topic. I agree. We should dig into that one another one. You know, one of the other things that uh, one of my favorite quotes of all time is from the CEO, Jim Barksdale. And he said, if we have data, let's use data. If all we have is opinion, let's use mine. And I think that that in a way <laughs> encapsulizes I think that in a way encapsulizes the the art and science. You need the data because if you don't have it, then it just becomes whoever has the highest ranking opinion in the room. And you and I have both been in those yeah. meetings where you didn't have that data to support a particular argument or strategy. And then it just went to, well, I think we should do this. And that's what ended up happening. I mean, I think famously when you and I both worked on Apple, Steve Jobs did not want to look at any data. He just would end yeah. up saying, this is what we should be doing. And we almost had to, we used the data ourselves. We did all the number crunching. We never really presented him. We just presented the the final output. But um, we did all the stuff in the background and then kind of sterilized it for what he wanted to see, which was what media we were going to be in. Because uh, he had a very emotional reaction to the types of media properties that we were in, but we on on, the, on in the background made sure that it wasn't just placating to his favorite shows or favorite magazines or whatever we were presenting at the time. Yeah, no, very very true. And I like the way you said it. Is you you get into those rooms and you get the one voice is like, oh, that's not the way it works. And they're just so steadfast in their opinion, but their opinion is just one thing that happened to them. Oh, well, when I did this, this is what happened. Okay, but we've got data to show you that when a thousand people did it, they had a different experience and that whatever, some X percentage of them really thought this was good and hence why we think this makes sense. But then you get that one person who's always the, you know, the the theory of one. Well, you know, that's not what I think. And so then you're fighting a losing cause. What about when you were at Red Bull? That's what I wanted to ask you. Yeah. Uh, as, as a client, you were in the room and you were getting presentations from agency partners, but you were also dealing with like internal points of view. How did that work? How did you guys rely on analytics and data to support direction or because Red Bull was so creative focused, how did you guys approach that? So I'm going to answer it in two different ways. So the media side of the house was very analytically driven. Okay. So the media planning and buying and, you know, working with their agency, that was more of where's our target, who's our target and using more of the, we'll call it the science, right. And finding that. Okay. On my side where I oversaw marketing and communications and the ideas that we would come up with that we'd put across, whether it was YouTube or the events working with the sports team, that was mostly art driven, working with athletes. What do you want to do? What do you want to, what, what's something you've always wanted to show? And they were like, I want to do X. And we're like, okay, can we create some sort of content around that to go across the social platforms? So we would be backing into artistically speaking with the client and trying to keep the Red Bull ethos being authentic, you know, pushing boundaries, all these kind of things to bring it to life across, whether it be YouTube, Instagram, Facebook, TikTok, whatever it happened to be at that time. Um, so we actually had a blend of both and it kind of depended on what part of the house you were in to whether it was a little bit more art or a little bit more science. But again, 
and I'll give a quick story is when Dietrich Mateschitz founded Red Bull, he actually hired a very famous company in Germany to do a whole field test and you know research on it. They said the world doesn't need this. Nobody wants it. And so he was like, I think you're wrong. I think I can make a whole brand and a whole company out of this. So he's another example of someone who never really wanted to get into, did not like being told what the numbers told him because he was so steadfast in his own belief because he built this billion dollar global company because he believed it was something that could be done. And so for him, when you started talking numbers, he wouldn't always listen because he was like, numbers, I don't believe because if I had listened to them, I wouldn't be here today. I never would have had my Right. That was a very Steve Jobs point of view as well. Yeah. But here's a, here's a question back to you. When you did, you so you, you decided on a program, you you leaned into the art side of the equation. Did you go back and measure it and to see if it worked? How did you qualify, oh, this was successful, we need to do more of this? Like what was the, did you use any metrics to kind of put a valuation on the output? Yeah, so the metrics for us on the media house side especially going through the mostly through social channels, as I talked about, really was engagement. Did we get likes? Did we get comments? Did we get shares? And the more we did that, and the more it actually kind of got people talking about it, the more we knew that, oh, we hit on something that actually got into the flow of conversation within the audience we wanted to reach. So that's how we measured it was more about, did it penetrate the zeitgeist? And were our audience in skateboarding, surfing, music, whatever it happened to be, sharing it, liking it, engaging with it, watching. If it was a 20-minute video, how much of that video were they watching? Um, that's how we measured it from that side. Because it, especially when I first got to Red Bull, it was really about brand love. How do we drive brand love? How do we drive brand engagement? And did you measure brand love? Did, did you measure brand love? Did you measure brand engagement? So you saw, hey, this increased pre and post. Correct. So we would do a a brand analysis for lack of better words. And we would say us compared to our competitors and other great brands, where do we fit between a monster, a rock star, maybe Levi's or some other hip, cool brands at that time, were we still considered hip, cool, but also endemically in certain areas, like in surfing and skating in these, in these areas that you think of Red Bull being in, were those groups also thinking of us as being very like, yes, like you're endemic to our area. We, we, we agree that you should be here with us. Um, so that we did. Everything was measured also in terms of quantifying how we were performing and actually almost like an ROI. Yeah, exactly. You know, speaking of ROI, I was thinking about naming rights for stadiums. Oh, yeah. And, you know, if you do a Google search on case studies for naming rights, you'll come back with zero results because there are no case studies for supporting uh, uh, naming rights. It's super expensive. And if you do, if you just rely on the science part of the equation, it won't pay out. Correct. Like the the costs that you have to pay versus what you get back in terms of uh, media impressions or... Uh, other valuation metrics, it won't it won't pay off for you. However, there's a component to the naming rights, which is community and engagement and uh, being a part of a city and having this presence that kind of supersedes what a marketing spend would look like. And there's a lot of reasons why companies would 
go down that route, even though it doesn't necessarily make sense from strictly a media valuation standpoint. But where do you think it actually has worked? So as an example, I always think of, and because my age, the Great Western Forum, right? I already know, if, <laughs> you know, Western was a banking right. institution and not even around anymore. Um, and obviously there's a stable right. center who's now changed their name yet again. Um, but right. who do you think, or do you have an example of where did somebody use the name of their company and the sport or the facility that was just like, oh my God, that makes sense. Yeah. Again, I, I think the it, it's a list that is super short because I, I can't think of anything off the top of my head. I don't think it makes sense unless, like I said, you have a reason for doing something in that particular city. I think the impressions and all the other stuff that you get from the signage and when people referred to it as the Staples Center and now it's crypto.com. I don't I don't think it's paying off for crypto.com to be honest with you. I know that they have in in the facility they have uh, brand activations for people you know to engage yeah. with their brand inside the the facility but again the cost that they had to pay to make that happen, they could have used those marketing dollars elsewhere and got similar results. So there has to be some other metric or some other way of measuring the success beyond just the traditional stuff. And it could be, like you said, it could be brand health. It could be engagements. I can't think of one. I know, I don't, I think Staples gave up those rights because at the end of their term, they made the tough decision that said, this is not paying out for us. So let's just, let's, let's play it out. And I don't know the numbers, but you and I could probably guesstimate what the numbers probably were. Staples was probably paying 30 to 35 million a year to have the naming rights. Now the, the Lakers, at least I, I'm not as, as knowledgeable as hockey as you are. The Lakers during that time were very, very yeah. good. They went to a lot of championships. So they were on primetime TV a lot. And they'd always say coming to you live from, you know, Staples Center game three of the, you know, Western finals or whatever, NBA finals. But again, I don't know how much that drives, I guess, brand awareness, but does that actually drive through the funnel? I guess that goes back to the art and the science. I don't think it does. I think, like I said, there's some other reason that would supersede the the media evaluation or the marketing evaluation of the benefits you get for that cost. There's no way that that money would even you even though you get those mentions and it's not just the sporting events it's Taylor Swift performing yeah true uh, although now now she's at SoFi not but she used to perform in uh, in Staples that got to be too crypto, small for but, her I mean yeah exactly uh, the but I think that again there's no there's no there's no math that would support that kind of investment. Unless you were able to active, you you would have to sew so many different things together. But that's to your but to your point, you know, you talk about community, right? You only have the one asset. The Staples Center is only in L.A., and so when you activate it, you only get L.A. and frequency is going to be high because season ticket holders are going to be coming to all these games or concerts or whatever more than other people. Obviously, concerts bring in a different crowd. That's why when you go back and you think about, so I'll use T-Mobile as an example. T-Mobile is a sponsor of Major League Baseball. Major League Baseball, if I do my math correct, is in 32 cities. They saw that as a way for them to have a national presence locally through all the teams and be able to activate it at a local level that way as opposed to being 
part of just one stadium, right? Now, yes, they, they have partnered with stadiums to bring like 5G into stadiums, but they did the larger deal with Major League Baseball because it gave them a national footprint to be able to do things in, you know, major cities across the entire United States. Right. I think there's another aspect is like if you're a big brand, let's say you're a financial institution, you can use that as an entertainment venue. You can bring potential clients in uh, into your suite that you own for entertainment. And, and it's a very expensive, you could just buy a suite there and not have the naming rights, no. but you get a lot more benefits, I think, if you are the naming rights holder. And so there could be a little bit of, hey, look at me. I have my name on this building. Come do business with us. So again, I think there are other aspects that transcend the cost benefit ratio of just getting the the marketing value. I think there's other things you can do in there. I can't tell, I can't pick one that has paid off. Yeah. Interesting. I, I can't think of one example. I mean, what about when, what was the thing that uh, Red Bull sponsored every year? The That one crazy flying. Flutog? Yeah. Flutog. Red Bull Flutog. Uh, yeah. Where you kind where everybody, yeah. the team. That to me their is own, something. Yeah. They create their flying, their own little flying thing. They push it off the end of the thing. It flies or it sinks and they fall into like some sort of lake or riverbed. Yeah. I mean, even though I forgot the name, that one <laughs> does strike to me as something that is totally appropriate for that for Red Bull as a brand extension. Oh, 100% because it has a crazy name, Red Bull Flutog. Nobody remembers Flutog, but everyone remembers it as that flying thing that you guys do. Um, but my first year at Red Bull, we did it down in the Long Beach Harbor. We had something like a it was definitely 100, but I think it was like 105 or 110,000 people came out for that event. It was free, so it wasn't like we were making money on it, but that was the whole point come out, spend the day. We were sampling Red Bull and we had the minis. We had the Red Bull girls and guys out handing out the cans, but that's what it was about, right? Come enjoy the brand, be part of the moment and have a fun day with us. When you were working on it, was Red Bull gives you wings was the tagline? It's always been there. It's always been their tagline from the very, very beginning. It's never changed. So, I mean, again, subjectively, I look at that and I say, oh, that is a perfect example of tying in a brand identity, weaving in the tagline. I mean, gives you wings and then here you are doing this avant-garde flying exhibition. So, exactly. I mean, I don't know. Did you have stuff that proved that it paid off for you guys? Did you have any measurement or this was just something where, again, like you said earlier, that you were going to lean heavier on the art side of it? Just because so you the knew it was the that, right the thing. Science, yeah. The science on that which came out was we knew when we – because we would take it to every – we'd take it to a major city or two, depending on the year, every year, okay? We knew from our on-premise teams and our sales teams that we would see an uptick because we'd create tent, you know, uh, table tents and we'd create all these little things for bars and clubs and restaurants that are all around wherever the actual location was. So we would see a big uptick in actual business. We would see an uptick in hotels. We would do a full city analysis. So if we were going to take it to a new city, we could say, hey, we have seen this city and go back, whatever, last two, let's use two as an example. And we'd say, we saw this much of a growth 
in money that came into that city over that weekend for people coming into this event, right? They paid for parking, they paid for food, they paid for drinks, they might pay for a hotel. So we knew we could actually drive income into um, a city over a weekend because we would do the analysis and that'd be part of how we would go to a city and pitch them on being able to do it. So to your point, that science, that background, that analytics of how it affected would get cities to say, yes, in fact, we'll help you do this. We'll support you. We'll put out, you know, we'll help you with marketing and gaining people, gaining traction for people to come because it would bring influx of dollars into the city and help small business owners. So you were able to generate revenue from external sources to help fund this brand activation. Correct. So you were able to sell more product into those places because uh, because yep. you were doing this. So it was it was a sales driver as well. That that that's amazing. Correct. So so there there's the example. There's the example of the naming rights it's not a stadium, it's an event, but it, it, that's one where I think it, it, to me, just again, from my outsider's yeah. perspective, looks like it paid off. I also think about things like Super Bowl. So every year when Hyundai would run a, a Super Bowl spot, immediately afterwards, we would have to do a valuation POV. Basically, compare all the things that we got, impressions, brand health, et cetera, and compare it to if we were to have spent this money in another way, such as mm -hmm. a you know just plain old broadcast impressions or digital impressions, did, did it pay out? Because one of the things the Super Bowl gets you is not just an ad on one of the most viewed broadcast events of the year, it also gets you secondary impressions because people are watching the video on YouTube and uh, you're getting mentions in USA Today's uh, voting poll. So I think that mm -hmm. there's a lot of different things that you can do to get additional impressions that, because there is a premium for being in that game, even though it's a high out of pocket, the efficiency is surprisingly good for that event. And so every year we would be in the Super Bowl, we did this valuation and it always paid out and it always paid out because. Okay. So hold on. Let me ask the question though. What, let's take the art now, right? That's the science. What if you had the worst scoring ad in the Super Bowl? Is that doing more harm to the brand that the media metrics can't offset? Well, fortunately, I've never worked on a brand that has the worst scoring. <laughs> <laughs> but I think that it would still pay out because it, you're still getting coverage. I mean, obviously, you could have negative impressions like people don't want to participate with your brand because of how poor the creative was. I could see that being a negative result. But let's assume that you have even just C-level creative. Wasn't the best, but it wasn't driving consumers away. Yeah. I think that creative or creative that has a negative effect on the people you're trying to reach, then it doesn't matter where you run it. It's not going to pay out for you. It's definitely, we're, we're, in my opinion, I think we're definitely at an interesting point right now. For, you, know, I, I, you do see some stuff that's very interesting. You do see some stuff that's very different. I don't see a lot of that on TV, but I'll admit I don't watch a lot of broadcast TV. But you, you see a lot of these, like Mint Mobile with Ryan Reynolds. There's a new company called Laundry Sauce who's running some really fun ads right now on YouTube. Uh, Dollar Shave Club, when they first came out, they had some really fun stuff. I think those are the brands that are young and hungry and scrappy. And to your point, they're willing to be like, let's be different. Let's take a swing. Let's see how 
you know, we know who we're going to talk to. Let's see how they, you know, how it connects with them. And they're not afraid to take a little bit of a risk. And they're not even, let's be honest, they're really not risks. They're just different. You know, we'll, we'll save it for another discussion, but I, I think part of it is the fragmentation. And I think yeah. pe- brands don't have the luxury of having these big tentpole events outside of the Super Bowl to air a big piece of creative. They have to rely on stitching together a lot of different impressions and hope they get that kind of momentum from people who react to the creative. But the, the most creative things that I've seen have all been online. I agree. Wholeheartedly. And in fact, I, I think that's actually a great place for us to go for next time, which is the, the fragmentation of marketing and messaging. And I think that, you know, let's see and let's kind of pay attention to what's going on around us and let's have that be the next topic. So this is a good place to end this discussion and then we'll pick it up with fragmentation next time. Sounds great. And I hope everybody enjoyed our, uh, our first foray into our podcast and hopefully you'll enjoy the rest that are to come. All right, Chris. Talk to you soon. Yeah, thank you.